You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. A mentor of mine taught me that environment is stronger than willpower. People who don't choose to live conscious lives are defined and shaped by their environment. They are outer directed. Then there are those individuals who look at their environment, don't like what they see, and create a new one from their imagination and desires. These people are inner directed. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I've discovered that leaders are readers, and as a listener to this show, you have access as a free gift to any audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 180,000 titles from our sponsor, Audible. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power, choose the book that you want, download it for free, enjoy it, and keep it forever. Also, you will get a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. I'm excited to announce that I have created brand new content for you. It is an additional episode, a short one, about five to ten minutes long, and it will appear at least once a week. I call these episodes One Word Stories. Each episode will focus on a word, a common word that we all use, but it may be charged with meanings that are affecting our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Enjoy these episodes as mini shots of empowerment. Remember to keep your dialogue with the show alive. It enriches everyone. Send your responses, your comments, your requests to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is an interdirected man with many talents. He has a PhD in mathematics. He's worked as an accountant, developed and sold software, became a senior investor analyst, strategist, and advisor in the corporate world, then created his own investment firm for clients with a net worth of seven figures and above. Today, he enjoys a lifestyle of freedom by design and works when he chooses as a part-time life coach. You're in for some edutainment today from Alex Gluskin. Alex, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you very much, Louis. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I've been looking forward to this for a while because you have 
many interesting stories that uh, the world needs to know. Let's start with where you were born. I was born and spent the first 18 years of my life in a city called Baku, B-A-K-U, which is the capital of Azerbaijan. Today, Azerbaijan is a, an independent and a very prosperous country. It has a lot of oil. But when I was born and when I lived there, it was a part of the Soviet Union. Right. Very interesting times, indeed. Can you give us a little, I mean, again, this would take, you know, volumes, but give us some salient points about what life was like in the Soviet Union at that time. Well, first of all, the Soviet society was very regimented. There was a right way and the wrong way to do absolutely anything. And anything to do with politics and economics was such that the right way was dictated by the Communist Party. And politically correct uh, has a very different connotation today than it did then. Politically correct at that time was saying exactly what the Communist Party wanted, what you were taught at school and at the university. And most deviations were severely punished <coughs> with various uh, acts up to the imprisonment. Hmm. So, as a young man with a, an inquisitive mind, with a, with a brilliant intellect, how were you feeling about that at the time? Well, in fact, I am still surprised, very surprised as to how we, the children, managed because <clears throat> there were many things said at home, at the dinner table, that should not have been repeated out in the streets. And if they were repeated, the whole family could have been arrested and sent to Siberia. And somehow at the age of three and four and five, we already knew what to say and what not to say to strangers, to teachers and to classmates. It, I, I would almost say that we were taught to lie or hide before we were taught to talk. And I have no idea how it happened, but, but we were very successful at it. Mmm, that's fascinating. Now, this may sound like a strange question, but was there anything that you liked about that society? There are two things that I really enjoyed about life in, uh, in, in uh, the Soviet Union, such as it was. But it is really the thing of, one of them has nothing to do with the Soviet Union, is the Russian poetry. I love Russian poetry. The other one is, is very Soviet, and that was the Soviet theater. And the Soviet theater was uh, very interesting. It was a way to say something about politics, to push the envelope in such a way that well-educated people would get it. And the censors, who were usually not very well-educated, would not. Uh, but that came a little bit later. That came when I was already in Moscow. So who was your favorite uh, playwright at the time? I cannot say that I had a favorite playwright because what the Russian or the Soviet theater did was they would take a classical play, they would take Chekhov, they would take uh, the Greek playwrights, they would take Homer, but they would put it in such a way that there would be hints that they were politically incorrect and very fine hints and 
uh, it wasn't about the author, and I have no idea who wrote those things. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because I'm, I'm now I'm thinking of the French playwright Jean Ennui, who wrote Antigone. Right. And, of course, he was doing the same thing. He was using the Greek mythology to make a statement about his contemporary uh, society. Correct. Very, and very interesting, yeah. If you want to give me three minutes... I will tell you how I saw Antigone in Moscow. Oh, yeah. Would... Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Okay, here's what happened. It was the theater that was called Sovremenik, which means contemporary. That theater was known for having no curtain, no sets. I mean, they made sets out of chairs and tables. Today it's the norm. At that time, at least in the Soviet Union, it was avant-garde. And they were putting on Antigone. And when we came to see the performance, we were amazed to see the curtain. They never had a curtain. And it was the play was in three acts, and uh, each act was broken into three sub-acts. And between each sub-act, the, the curtain would go up and go down for no reason that we could understand. And the set was absolutely realistic, and the actors were wearing togas and, and the costumes of the time of Antigone which was also wrong for this theater. However, right from the very beginning, the, the King's Palace, where most of the action happens, had stairs coming down to the ramp. And on those stairs, in the right corner, there were two soldiers in red army uniform playing dice silently. They did not participate in any action whatsoever. Nobody addressed them. They never looked at the audience or at what was happening behind them on the stage, but they were there. And it was only somewhere in the middle of the show that we realized that every time the curtain went up and down, actually first down, then up, one of the details of their uniforms was changed from the Red Army uniform to the German SS uniform. So that, so that by the end of the show, when the king says to Antigone, his daughter, he says, but you don't understand, it doesn't matter who is the hero and who is the villain. People need a hero and a villain and will give it to them. By that time, the Red Army uniform changed completely into the SS uniform, saying, guys, there isn't that much difference. Wow. You're right. Woo, that is powerful, man. That was Antigone in Moscow. Wow. <laughs> mm, and it does mm. not exist anymore because today you can do, like here, you can come out and say anything you want. So this strategy of shaking your fist in the pocket so that only some people would understand isn't necessary and is gone. Mm, that is wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Now, what would you say you hated most about living there? Well, that was a lot. I, I hated being forced to lie all the time to be politically correct. I hated the severe limitations on, on freedom. You were assigned to a place where you lived, and to change that you had to go to the police and get the permission, which usually was not given. Uh, I spent my first 18 years in the same room with my parents, in an apartment where there were seven other families, one family per room, and 
you can imagine as a teenager trying to date where I'm living in the same room with my parents and the girls live in the same room with their parents. There's no <laughs> privacy. There's absolutely no privacy. There are no cars. There is no back seats. There is arranging, <laughs> arranging privacy was, was building our creativity. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, that as horrendous as these situations can be, they do challenge one to yes. either a person, like I said, is going to be uh, defeated by it and become uh, passive, a, a passive, passive. And, right, or extremely creative, which I know you did. <laughs> right, <laughs> that is right. wonder. That is wonderful. So, did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, that changed, like with. Most kids, I wanted to be a sailor, I wanted to be a fireman. Most of the time, I wanted to be a lion tamer. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because I love circus, and Moscow Circus was indeed phenomenal. It has gone downhill a lot because their best, uh, their best uh, performers are now at Cirque du Soleil and everywhere else, but they were all in Moscow, and they would always have trained animals and I just loved animals. I've always loved animals, and I've loved big cats. Still love them, and I wanted to work with them. Hmm. Well, I would say, having known you over the years, that in a way, you did become a lion tamer. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I did. <laughs> You've tamed a few lions in your time. I know that. <laughs> well, I. I also ran away from a few, especially the Russian security police. I know. Oh, we're going to get to that. I love that one. Um, did your parents have a different plan for your life than you had for your own? Yes. My parents wanted me to be a nice, uh, quiet, uh, passive Soviet citizen like they were. And they had this idea of architecture because I was very good at math, but I could also draw very well, and I was going through art school at the same time as regular school and combining drawing and arts with mathematics architecture was natural and my mother was an architect uh, unfortunately i discovered that i couldn't care less about architecture and architecture is one of the very few arts that don't doesn't speak to me at all hmm interesting yeah so when did you develop a strong desire to move to north america uh I will tell you, I started studying English with a private tutor at the age of 11. And within three years, I was good enough to understand the Voice of America in English and the BBC World Service in English. Not 100%, but year by year, I was understanding more and more. Uh, those stations broadcast to Russia true news for the Soviet Union and the news from the world. Uh, they broadcast in Russian and English, of course, but the broadcasts in Russian were jammed. However, jamming is a lot more expensive than broadcasting. It requires a lot more output of energy. And so the Russians never, the Soviets, never jammed the English language translations. And so I was listening, and I was listening to what the world was doing, and I was listening about the stories from inside uh, Great Britain and the United States, and it sounded a whole lot better than what was around me. 
Now, when did you make that decision and start your strategy to leave Russia? Well, uh, you cannot put those in two in the same sentence. Here is why. Uh, as I was growing older, I became very uh, knowledgeable about this black market. Uh, once I left home and went to the Moscow State University, uh, I developed several businesses. All businesses were illegal. The only legal employer was the state. And I understood how the Soviet economy was working. And in 1966, when I was 20 years old, I told my parents that the Soviet economy was not working, that it was going to collapse sooner or later, that the collapse would be quite terrible, and that I didn't want to be there during the collapse, and I would find a way to leave before that. Having said that, I could have no strategy because at that time the Soviet Union was completely locked up. There was no way to leave. And even if you look at the map and you look at this enormous border between the Soviet Union or the Russian today and China, through the entire Siberia, through the entire Asia, that border was covered by the Soviet border troops so that each soldier could see the soldier on the left and the soldier on the right. Mm. That is more than a million people just locking the border. And they were looking for the people coming from the outside, meaning spies, and much more people coming from the inside, meaning those who tried to escape. There was mm. no way out. Mm. So, how did you engineer your departure from Russia? Well, it's a long story, but uh, I will give you a super short version. Uh, uh, the, my, my great thanks go to the President of the United States that is now uh, universally reviled. It was Richard Nixon who understood Russians. He was a dishonest man, as we know, and he understood other dishonest men, particularly those in the Kremlin. And they had a uh, severe shortage of, of wheat, as they usually did. Uh, they were buying a large amount of wheat from the United States, and Nixon said that the wheat will not be delivered until 10,000 Soviet citizens were allowed to leave. And so the Russians were forced to create some kind of a system for people to get the permission to leave permanently. Uh, and they made it absolute hell. Uh, I will just give you one example. You needed to collect about 20 documents uh, for example, the first one would be from your employer saying, uh, in effect, I know that this man wants to leave the Soviet Union and work for our enemies, and I have nothing against it. <laughs> there was no way. You had to get the same from the landlord, and nobody owned property. Everybody had a landlord who basically worked for the government. You had to have the same from your parents. The same from your sibling. You had to collect all of those impossible documents. And so, obviously, you got fired from your job. You got, you got lost most of your friends. And then we got into forging the documents so that we could just apply. And it goes on and on and on. I've told the full story many times. It takes about six hours. But eventually, I got the permission from the Soviet government to leave the Soviet Union after having been... Uh, interrogated by the Soviet security police, the KGB, after having been uh, uh, persecuted by them with the idea of scaring me, 
and doing many other interesting things. How did they threaten you? Well, they were sort of, they were implied threats. As soon as I applied, just collected all of those impossible documents, most of them forged, and, and applied, within a short period of time, a big, strong man uh, accosted me in Moscow in the evening. Uh, I don't think they, they had a good file on me. They didn't look. They didn't know that I was a high-level boxer, so he didn't do very well. Uh, <laughs> he didn't expect anything from a skinny guy with glasses. Uh, I was lightweight, but that one worked, worked okay. The next guy... Uh, Louis, you would just look at him and you would know that he would take any two sumo wrestlers and beat them to the pulp. Mm. He was big, nasty, and well-trained, but he couldn't run. And before mm. I was a boxer, I was a runner. So that ended okay. Uh, and, and, there were, and eventually there was a man in a, in a dark alley who just pretended to be drunk, but he stuck a gun in my face silently. And he was sort of wavering from side to side, but the gun was not. It was staring right between my eyes. I had no idea whether he had the permission to shoot me, was going to shoot me or not. Uh, I wasn't going to fight it. I can't fight a bullet. So I just turned around and slowly walked away, and he didn't shoot. Mm. Yeah. Then they had a chat with me. They invited me and showed me my file with all the information about my black market activities. Uh, you should know that in the Soviet Union, by our estimates, about every fifth person reported on others, including his friends and family, to the security police. So mm -hmm. they had all the information. And they said, just based on this file, we can send you to, for five years to Siberia today. Do you want to calm down and, and sort of forget your big plans or not? And I said, absolutely, and then changed the address and disappeared for a while. <laughs> I was changing my address every few weeks the last three months in Moscow. Now, were you still living with your parents? Oh, no. My parents, I left home when I was 18. They were not in Moscow. My parents were still in Baku. In ah, okay, okay. I was in Moscow. I see. Now, um, so how did, describe the day when you actually made the departure. Well, that's another very good story. Uh, I don't think you and I have the time for the full version of it. Uh, but I will try. Yeah, just the highlights of it, yeah. Yeah, my but flight was, uh, I'll just give you, not highlights, but snippets. First of all, before I left, to, to leave, you had to have an invitation from Israel. What the Soviets did was they said, we will accept invitations from any person who's natural ethnic homeland is not within the Soviet Union. So some of the Germans and Poles who got stuck in Russia after the Second World War could apply, and the Jews could apply, because Israel is outside of the Soviet Union. Ukrainians could not apply, because Ukraine was within the Soviet Union. So the same Latvians, Estonians, Armenians, they couldn't apply. But the Jews could, and believe it or not, there was a black market to become Jewish or to marry a Jew. This was a very rare situation in history where people were paying money to become Jewish. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In any case, uh, uh, so we had to have an invitation from Israel. Uh, my ex-wife and I did arrange such invitations. It's another story. 
but a lot of people gave me their names and addresses so that once I'm in Israel, and that's where I was going, that was the only direction you could go, uh, I would arrange invitations for them. And they were all in my memory. I would not put them on paper because these people would be just arrested and, and persecuted. Now, my flight was at 7.30 a.m., I remember that. Uh, I had my, my parents came to Moscow to see me off. I came, uh, we came to the airport on my insistence at 4 a.m. And it was, there were some relatives of my ex and my parents uh, and a friend. And within an hour, maybe, a very small old man showed up. You see, to know how the departure works, I had gone to the airport to say goodbye to many other people. I want to see how the situation played out. And so this man showed up. He was a porter, and he had the uniform of a porter. But honest to God, he couldn't have carried my little briefcase. He was too old and too weak. And that wasn't really his job. As soon as he showed up, I walked to him, walked him into a corner. I gave him 200 rubles, which was two months worth of gross salary, average gross salary. And I said, you see that man there? He said, yes. I said, when I'm leaving, if everything is okay, he will give you another 200. And he said, how will he know? And I smiled and said, he will know. And he took the money and disappeared. Half an hour later, he came out and beckoned me with a finger. So I said goodbye to my parents and to everybody else, so did my ex, and we went with him and with our luggage. The flight hadn't been announced yet. We came to the customs, and there were two customs officers. Now, Louis, this is about 5.30 a.m. The two men were totally drunk. They were hanging on to the table on which our suitcases were. They very routinely went through the stuff, just threw stuff around. One, at one point in time, he, the guy was picking up a camera and saying, this is a radio? I said, yes, he just put it right back. They were paying no attention. They had been paid off by the little guy. They put us through, and I knew that once we went past the customs, we would go to the second floor, because I saw other people do it, and go by the little window. And I went by the little window, and I showed my father an open hand. And in advance, I told him, if you show a fist, don't give anybody any more money. You see an open hand, give the other 200 rubles to this little man, Porter. I showed him an open hand that everything was fine. And we went to the waiting room, and then I heard the radio announcing our flight. And later I found out that the customs were changed, a fresh team came in and they tore people's goods to shreds and they searched for so long that half the people missed the flight and the flight left without them. We avoided all of that by paying a horrendous bribe, four months worth of full salary. Mm. And then we sat there and waited and the flight came and we went aboard and when the it was Aeroflot. It was the Soviet uh, airline. It's the only airline that flew inside the Soviet Union. And when we were up in the air, my ex turned to me and said, thank God, Alex, we are free. You can write down all the names and addresses before you forget it. And I said, no. She said, why? I said, I have no idea which way we are flying, west or east. 
we might be all flying to Siberia for all I know. <laughs> That's how much I trusted them. Only when we landed and walked out of the plane and I saw the word Vienna written in Latin letters, I turned to my ex and said, okay, now we're free. Oh, my God. What was the date? Do you remember the date? Oh, yes. I celebrated every year. It was November 30th, 1972. Wow. That is the birthday that I remember. My real birthday, for some reason, I don't remember very well. My mother remembered it, but I didn't. But this one I do remember. And wow. I was 26 years old. 26 years old. Wow. So now you were in Vienna. Yes, we went to Vienna as just a... Uh, it was a refugee camp, but it was in a very nice old castle, the Chinao Castle. And we were supposed to be there for two days, maybe one day, and fly to Israel. Unfortunately, as soon as we landed in Vienna, El Al, the Israeli airline, went on strike. And we got stuck in Vienna for about five days. But that's oh. a different story. Okay, then you went to Israel, right? Yes. And how long did you stay in Israel? A year and a half. And when and did the, you... Go ahead, go ahead, say. The most interesting part of that was that I came to Israel without ever seeing the Hebrew alphabet or hearing one word of Hebrew. But since my profession was a professor of mathematics, I spent six months studying the language, 16 to 18 hours a day, and they have a fabulous system for teaching language. They teach it to all the newcomers. And six months later, I walked out and started lecturing in Hebrew. Oh, wow. Mind you, it was mathematics. So you write the formulas on the blackboard, and most of the things you have to say is, well, here and therefore and from here to there and stuff like that. It's not like lecturing in history or literature. Mm, mm. But I was reasonably fluent. So and when did you first come to Canada? I came to Canada on April the 16th, 1975, after having spent a year and a half in Israel and nine months in Paris in France. And why did you choose Canada? Well, I did not like Israel for many reasons. I went to France and I was thinking about living in Europe, but I did not like Europe. Europe was all looking backwards in time. Uh, and I can give you a small example of that. And I decided I really wanted to be in North America. North America sounded like a place where there was more business opportunities, there was more freedom. Uh, there was less tradition and less rules. And I applied both to the United States and Canada. Uh, to tell you the truth, Louis, when you look at Canada and the United States from the outside, there isn't that much difference. Mm. Living here, we see a lot of differences. But from the outside, you compare that to France, to Israel, to Russia, uh, they look very, very close. They look the same. Canada accepted me first, and I came, which is another series of interesting stories. I'm sure. Now, what, city yeah. did, what city did you come to? Toronto. Toronto. Now, you get here, did you know people? Nobody. I knew my ex and another family that came with us, also from the Soviet Union through Israel. Wow. So, what did you do immediately to start 
earning a well, living? Well, uh, there is an organization called JAYAS, uh, Jewish Immigrant Aid Society. They met us at the airport. They rented the cheapest hotel room in Toronto. It doesn't exist anymore. Like all cheapest rooms in cheapest hotels, it was actually a brothel. I lived, in a brothel. <laughs> I lived in a brothel in France, and I lived in a brothel here in Toronto. <laughs> it's quite interesting, I can tell you. Uh, and, and they asked me how they could help. They told me they could not help with money, and I had a little bit of savings from Israel. But they said, what can we do for you? And I said, introduce me to five people. That's all I need. I'll take it from there. And I have to tell you that my ex-wife was the best networker I had ever seen in my entire life. And mm. what they did was they wrote a note to a rabbi of a uh, reform synagogue here in Toronto, a very wealthy synagogue. And they wrote, here are the two uh, newcomers from the Soviet Union, and, and you keep talking a lot about the freedom for the Soviet Jews, where here, here are the two of them, and please introduce them to five people. And we found the synagogue the next day, and we went there, and we talked to the rabbi, and we showed this note, and guess what? He introduced us to five people, not six, not seven, just five. And we started telling stories about our life in Russia and asking people what we should be doing here and telling them about our plans. Mm. And uh, who opened the doors for you of those five people? The rabbi. But did any of the five people open doors as well? They immediately invited us to their houses and, and listened to the stories, found the stories fascinating, started inviting us and friends. We became sort of a, uh, a new entertainment uh, item for these families. <laughs> That's true. We didn't mind at all. And I wanted to get into some kind of business. I didn't want to do mathematics anymore. Uh, my ex worked, I mean, she had a degree in biology from the Moscow State University, but in Israel she worked for a bank, and she was reasonably uh, fluent or comfortable in five or six languages, and she went to all the big, and Israel, by the way, is on the same British banking system as Canada. So on the advice of some of these people, she went to all the big banks, from, actually right at the corner of King and Bay, and the Bank of Nova Scotia just lost one of the foreign exchange tailors. And they loved a person who spoke five languages because people came to exchange currency. And many of those people were actually visitors whose English wasn't very good, uh, tourists, etc. And so she got a job with the bank. And uh, I wanted to learn about business. And I was advised that the language of business was accounting which I didn't know. My English was very good, but it was all learned by reading the books of uh, Oscar Wilde and Charles Dickens, and such words as assets and liabilities and, and foreclosures were not in my vocabulary. <laughs> so I did embark, uh, and they helped me, and there is another 
fabulous story about it. It was not easy, but they helped me to get a job with an accounting firm. And I started doing the entire uh, public accounting system. I did it for three years, and I took all the courses and, uh, and learned accounting. Wow. What would you say were the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome to start really enjoying your life here in the free world? I will formulate it in one very short sentence consisting of four, uh, let me see, five words, I think. You don't have Canadian experience. That's what I heard from absolutely everywhere where I tried to either get a job or get some kind of useful information. You don't, you, I, don't, you don't have which... Uh, you don't which? have Canadian experience. Oh, okay. Well, obviously I don't. If somebody doesn't give me a chance, how will I get any? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the biggest obstacle. Uh, I did overcome it very easily. I uh, came up with a fabulous formula. Uh, it was not true, uh, not... Uh, perfect truth, but whenever I applied for a job in the future, uh, I would always say, ask them what the job was, and I would say something to the effect of, that's exactly what I did in Russia, but we did it differently. Give me three weeks, I'll figure out how you guys do it. Mm. It worked. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Now... How long did you work in the corporate world before striking out on your own? Because, I mean, striking out on your own takes is a bold move. True. Well, if you consider all the different things that I did, starting with accounting and software and then investments, I started in 75 and I opened my business in 91. So it was, hmm. if I'm not mistaken, uh, 16 years. Six, 16 years, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not only that, but I joined the investment industry in 1980, and I did not try it. Uh, I was invited to join it, and I already knew more about investing than a particular kind of investing than anybody within the investment world. And I was hired to set up a department and to run that department from scratch. So from 1980 to 1991, I have spent 11 years in the investment industry. So when I started my business, I knew exactly what to do. And I so, also had, yeah. Okay, so where did you get that knowledge that put you ahead of others, the knowledge of investments? In 1974 in Israel, I became, actually in 73, late 73, I became interested in the stock market. And I started studying it. And... Number one, because I was a professional mathematician, and number two, because I didn't have a lot of money of my own. Uh, I developed a system whereby as soon as I learned a particular theory or strategy, or as soon as I came up with one of my own, I would take $100,000 on paper, imaginary money, and start investing it according to that strategy. And I can tell you that in the first 10 years of doing that, I lost $5 million on paper. Mm -hmm. And I learned way more than almost any investor because most investors manage one portfolio, their own. 
Mm. And I was I was running hundred thousand dollar portfolios on paper in all kinds of different strategies. Let's try this. Let's try that, and see how it works out. It took a lot of discipline. It ate up all of my free time. But in 1980, I was invited to one of the top brokerage houses in Canada at the time to set up a whole department because in the area of options, I knew more than anybody else in that uh, in that company. That's a beautiful story. What do you think you took from your life in Russia that enabled you to create enormous success here? Uh, one of the most important rules that I learned is manage your risks. Because one thing I didn't mention, that life in Baku, my first 18 years, was very violent. If you think of inner city Detroit, but you replace all the guns with knives, you will have that idea. Getting from my home to school without a fight in the street was an event. And so those were the risks to life. And later, there were always risks to be arrested. And so I learned, because the risks were so enormous in the first 26 years of my life, and then I went through the war of 1973 in Israel. I did not serve, but I felt the war quite seriously. My mind always said, first of all, you manage the risk. You minimize the risk. And then you look at how to improve other things. And in the investments, is extremely important. Mm. Now, do you feel that you have a greater appreciation for money and capitalism because of your early life? I cannot tell, Louis, because I've, ha I've lived only one life. I always knew that money bought nice things and money bought more freedom. And freedom has always been extremely important to me. Uh, so I was always interested in it, and uh, would I have been interested in it if I grew up here in a different environment? I don't know. Maybe it's my nature, maybe it's the environment. I cannot tell. Well, the reason I ask that is it seems to me that what happens often to people who have only known North America is they become very, very lazy, and True. They, they there isn't the sense of, the full appreciation of uh, the value, you know, to understand. I mean, you lived in a society where that value was denied to most human beings. Yes. And, and now you come here and you see, wow, we can actually have it. And yes. maybe at some level that gave you a deeper appreciation for it. And, oh, I'm uh, sure it did. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Uh-huh. Louis, let, let me tell you an old Russian joke. Okay. It's just... Is just exactly what you're talking about. Uh, 1945, the very end of Second World War, the Americans and the Russians are converging on Germany. And it says that the American soldier and a Russian soldier meet in Berlin. And the Russian soldier used to be a teacher of English, so he can actually converse with the American. And the American says to him, you know, he says, I've read about the Soviet Union. I can't understand how you can live there. He said, me, being an American, I can go stand, I can go to Washington, D.C., stand in front of the White House and say that the American president is a complete idiot and nothing will happen to me. You cannot do that. The Russian said, of course I can do that. The American says, how? The Russian says, simple. 
What's the problem? I go to the Red Square, I stand in front of the Kremlin, and I can say that the American president is a complete idiot. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I have a great appreciation for freedom, great appreciation for convenience, great appreciation for the opportunities that exist here. And uh, there is no doubt about the, the level of appreciation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the pleasure of knowing you and your wife for a long time. And I, I know that you, you live that life and you live it with great grace and elegance, true. and that's and it's Thank quite wonderful. Yeah, it's true. It's quite wonderful. So, why do so many people suck at investing? Well, you have to separate them into two groups. Believe it or not, and I wouldn't have believed it if I did not uh, see it. But more than probably sixty percent of wealthy people use their investments as gambling. Hmm. It's a casino mentality. They don't believe it. They think they're investing. But I will tell you, I ran my own business for uh, how for 14 years. You would not believe how many clients left me, even though their money was growing very nicely. Why they left me? They said, Alex, it's boring. I'm having no fun. And I told them, you want to have fun, go to the movies, but fun costs money. <laughs> Making money is boring. It's like watching the grass grow. It's watching your money grow. It grows by so many points of 1% every month. It is boring. But do you want your money? Well, you know, I have heard something exciting about here, something exciting there, and they would take either some money away or all money away. Excitement, that's what they're looking for. They already have enough money. Mm. So they're using investment as excitement. Now, let's get rid of them. Let's look at all the people who are serious investors. The majority of them are not doing very well. And by the way, you may not believe that. But most stockbrokers also lose my, their own money in the stock market. They make a lot of money off clients, but they still don't know how to play the market. And the reason is very simple. 98, 99% of what's happening in the stock market is not predictable. It's mathematically not predictable. There are a few situations that are, and those are the only ones a serious investor should look at. However, the entire industry is built on those gamblers because they produce a lot more commissions than other investors. And everybody tries to forecast everything. What, how, how much money will Bell Canada make next quarter, next year? How much money this company will make? How much money that company? Nobody can say that. Nobody can say, nobody can tell that. You have to get rid of all the noise and focus on what is actually predictable. I will give you an example. In, in a mathematical sense, the stock market is very similar to the weather. And, and if I ask you, is it predictable whether it will rain exactly one month from now? Of course not. Is it predictable what temperature will be at this time one week from now? It is not. 
But to say that the weather is completely unpredictable this would be wrong. For example, I am absolutely sure that the average temperature this August will be higher than the average temperature next February. <laughs> I can bet on that. I can put money on that. The same with the stock market. The vast majority of what people are investing in is actually unpredictable. Mm, mm, mm. The, the trick is to find what is predictable and play that. You know, what I really love here, what you said about people... Uh, getting bored because they wanted excitement and they didn't yes. recognize that. Uh, there's a marvelous book, you probably know it, The Slight Edge. Yeah. And the brilliance of the book is that he talks about if you really are interested in success, then you value these tiny incremental changes or tiny incremental behaviors that you put yeah. into place and repeat again and again. And in and of themselves, they're not very romantic or exciting. Right. But they add up. And when they add up, they add up exponentially. That's true. That's you know? very, very true. You know, uh, wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, we, you began your business. You had an exit strategy in mind, didn't you? No, I did no? not. Oh, interesting, no. interesting. No. Interesting. You, you can manage investments uh at any age, as long as your brain is working, you can be in a wheelchair. I read a beautiful article uh, about a man. I don't remember when I read it. I was still in the business. But this man uh, was 100 years old. He ran his own investment firm in New York, a successful one. It was a uh, private one, so you didn't hear about it. It wasn't as huge as John Templeton or Fidelity. It was doing extremely well. And he came to the office every single day at the age of 100. And when he was interviewed, he said, my only regret, he said, it's a great business. And my only regret is that it took me 70 years to figure out how to actually make money in the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I got it faster. <laughs> so, no, I had no exit strategy. Oh, my God. I was now, pushed out of the business basically by... The government. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. What, hap what happened was that, uh, and it's still happening, both the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States and the Ontario Securities Commission in Ontario create rules and regulations, and they always have in mind an enormous company with a legal department. In fact, somewhere in about 19... Uh, 1999 or 2000, the Ontario Securities Commission announced that they will not send us any letters or any information about the changes of the rules. Just go to our website. And every week they change some of the rules. By 2004, 2003-2004, I was spending 80% of my time doing legal work to satisfy the government requirements. There was no time left to manage the business or to do any research. I needed a full-time lawyer and a good one and maybe more than one. And my firm was way too small to, to afford such a huge expenditure. It would have been, it would have been bitten into my profit seriously. So small firms started 
joining and merging. And I had enough money and I didn't want to have partners, so I sold mine mm. in 2005. Mm. You know, but it's interesting. It was, okay. Yeah. It was the change in the environment instituted by the government, creating enormous amount of regulations and, and red tape and paperwork that basically pushed me out of a good business. But, you know, here's, here's what's interesting. They created a story that was an outer circumstance that many people just kind of, although they hated the story, they, they lived into it. You, as you always have done, create your own story and sure. continue to live your life of freedom. And that's what is so wonderful. Uh, what non-work activities excite and stimulate you the most? Well, uh, I, the, by far the best is a conversation with an interesting person. I have very interesting friends from all different walks of life. And I love those conversations. Sometimes they are in person. Sometimes they're over email. Uh, I love today's communication. That is the biggest part. I also like to play chess and backgammon. Uh, I love reading. And, uh, and I love working out. But unfortunately, after my sports career, which we haven't touched, uh, my body is so overworked and broken up in parts that I can work out only very lightly. I'm one of the very few people who enjoys hard workouts. Mm. Others, others pay money to personal trainers to push them harder. I have to basically sit on the brakes every time I work out so I don't uh, overexert myself. Wow, wow, that's interesting. But you also love the theater too. I love the theater. But unfortunately, there is so much subpar theater that if you average it out, it averages out to something not terribly exciting. With books, I can pick and choose, and Amazon.com gives me, Amazon.ca gives me a wonderful ability to download samples yep. and read the first 6% of the book and see whether I like the style, whether I like the story. With the theater, once I bought the ticket, I'm in. And a lot of the theater sort of does not quite meet my expectations. Uh, I agree. Uh, uh, that, that's very true for a lot of Canadian theater, unfortunately. Uh, I did see something a week ago that I would recommend uh, by, by the Jewish Theater up at um, the Toronto Center for the Arts, and it's called Mikveh, uh, uh, written by uh, a woman from Israel. Fasc uh -huh. fascinating story about the, um, the well it's what is often they attempt to keep secret the incredible almost primitive oppression that a lot of the women within that orthodox culture undergo and it's centered around mm -hmm. this ritual called the mikveh and yeah. um, uh, you know Maria you know Maria Rocosa oh yes I do. She, she's in it she's in the show okay. uh, it's really worth it it's, it was a very very good production um, yeah and uh, okay thank you okay now yeah. how did you meet your wife whom I actually knew before I knew you Oh, yes, long time ago. Yes, she came from the theater world, but I met her at a brokerage house in 1988. 
uh, very end of 1988. She was a rookie broker. She was just moving into the industry. And I was already collecting clients within the brokerage house. I was an investment advisor, but I was very well known in the industry. I had a, an investment book out and I had discretionary authority over my clients. And uh, she just showed up and she was very bright and she had incredible uh, drive. I love people with drive. And she had a drive to succeed uh, from a completely different education and, and background. And we started talking and talking to her was pure pleasure. And it did not hurt that she was very beautiful. Yes, she is in body and spirit. Let's see. I've known Shauna now. Well, yeah, I, I met her, I think, a year or two before you did, when we were right. act actually uh, living in the same apartment building. And um, right. uh, it's great, because out of that came the friendship with you, and the rest is history. That's now, right. how did the two of you, what would you say would be the, if there's a secret to having forged a strong, lasting bond? It would be common interests. Mm. Yeah. If a relationship is based just on, on, on emotional and sexual excitement of the new relationship, but the basic interests of people are not aligned, uh, I don't think the long-term picture is very promising. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people very quickly have children, and then children become that common bond. Uh, but eventually children leave, and what's left after that? Uh, I would say that uh, we, we, we have a lot of similar core values and we had a lot of similar uh, plans for ourselves in the financial world, uh, in, in financial well-being, etc., etc. And we both love theater and we both love travel. And I had a lot more travel experience. Well, I didn't travel that much, but I'd lived in different parts of the world. Uh, so that was that was good. But... Uh, it's an interesting thing, Louis. I saw some research that was uh, analyzing the common sort of phrase that opposites attract. What they found out was that opposites work extremely well in the business environment where you actually do need people different from you with different set of skills. But in a personal relationship or a long-term relationship, the more similar you are, the better you work out. Mm. Very, Very interesting. Yes, indeed. Alex, what what is your favorite book? Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, nonfiction first. Nonfiction, definitely Blink, as Blink, The Blink of an Eye, mm -hmm. by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. I love all of his books, but this is the best, I think. It's an early one, too. Blink? Yeah, I I don't know. I didn't read them in sequence, but it's oh yeah, it is. Yeah, it's def definitely because I think uh, yeah he did a few after that, and then there was Outliers became quite yeah. the um, quite the buzz for a long time. Blink, I have I have Blink as a matter of fact. What about your nonfiction? I mean your fiction. Fi your fiction, yeah. Well, this is a different story. Uh, most fiction is written about average people. I, have, I know a lot of Irish people, and I study them in real life. I don't need to read about them. Uh, I like to read about people who are strong and smart and determined, and I find those people only in thrillers and not, not all of the thrillers. 
So I do read quite a few thrillers. My favorite authors are in the thriller genre are Lee Child, uh, Vince Flynn, who is the late Vince Flynn, and Kyle Mills, who took from him. They are probably my favorite authors. Uh, slow down. So first is Lee Child or Child? Yes, Lee Child, as, as in a baby. Child. Okay, and the second one was? Vince Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. Okay. He, is, he has died, and another writer of thrillers by the name of Kyle Mills, M-I-L-L-S, took over, and he's continuing with the same style and the same character. Fantastic. Uh, name one book, just one book from that. Uh, you know what? There are so many. I, I cannot. Give me a second. Just give me a second. I'll give you a book. It doesn't matter because I can always look them up. Well, not all of them are equally good. That is the problem. Uh, I would say uh, one of them is Term Limits. As in the first term, the second term, the third term. Term limits. That's by Vince Flynn. Okay, good. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. What about a favorite quote? Yes, my favorite quote would not be very popular today here. Because it is, he is the strongest who stands alone. And that is from Hendrik Ibsen. Oh, he is the strongest who stands alone. And I do understand the value of cooperation and relying on your support network and all of that. But if you rely too much, you become dependent, you become weak. Uh, I believe that you have to be able in your mind to lose everything you have and still be strong and still have your own self and your own goals. I love it. Let me ask you, uh, what work did Ibsen write that in? You I know? do not know. I'll look it up because. Um, look it up. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was certainly one of. Yeah, yeah, he was certainly one of my favorite. Uh, well, he's one of the fathers of modern drama. Um, fantastic. So, if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing, only one in the world, what would it be? Again, a very non-standard answer. I would wave the magic wand and make it so that every person on this planet, whatever their be beliefs are, would stop and think about consequences before saying or doing anything. Mm. That's a big one. That's fantastic because uh, we'd have a much more harmonious world if people did that. That's right. And a lot of people wouldn't do the stupid things that they do and then they regret. Now, I often, I usually ask my guests, how can people contact you? But I don't know if you want to be contacted because unless, you know, you're promoting a particular work or it's up to no, you. I I'm not promoting absolutely anything. Let them contact you, and you decide what our next conversation will be about. I love it. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? The final thoughts, I would say, are, this is a subject we haven't touched at all, but my final thought would be, do not believe when they tell you, just be yourself. Always try to improve yourself. You know what? I'm starting to live more and more by that philosophy every single day. 
Thank you so much. You have contributed such incredible value and entertainment to our listeners today, Alex. Thank you for inviting me again. And uh, we'll do it again, Louis. We definitely will. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending this special time today with me and Alex Gluskin. I consider myself honored to have met Alex many years ago and have created a friendship with him and with his wife, Shauna. I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I've been entertained a lot through my time with both of them. And I think you'll agree that you spent time today with a a brilliant, entertaining, and authentic human being who tells it like it is, who's not concerned about political correctness and whether or not you're going to like what he has to say. But I'll bet that as a result, you did like a lot of what he had to say. I would love to know from you what you got from listening to Alex. Personally, what I think was so special about today's talk is that we got the rare opportunity to spend time with someone who was actually behind the Iron Curtain, who had to deal with that regime, and who managed, through his own determination, intelligence, and creativity, to get out of that system and establish a wonderful life of abundance and contribution here in the free world. There's a lot to be learned from that. What did you learn? What did you take from it? Send your responses to lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at gmail.com. We discussed literature, we discussed books, fiction and nonfiction. Once again, I urge you to go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and immediately grab a free audiobook of your choice and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles and you'll get an entire month free of all of Audible's services. Once again, www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can listen to this and be entertained and enriched by the guests that they meet on this show. They can hear this at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. And at that website, take advantage of the free gift I created for you, the downloadable free ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Alex certainly left us with many things to contemplate. Here's a suggestion for you to think about during the next week. One of the highlights of this man's personality is his ability 
to face any challenge with a sense of creativity and an inner knowledge that he will find a solution, which of course leads him to create a new story and therefore new circumstances and not be dominated by circumstances that he doesn't like. I know that every one of us faces circumstances in our lives that we don't like, that we may even hate, that constantly frustrate us, and often we may find ourselves saying, well, I have no choice, or that's just the way it is. Both those statements are negative and limiting stories. So I would challenge you during the next week to look at any circumstance that perhaps has thwarted you for a long, long time and you've accepted it. Stand back, ask, what if I can actually change my circumstance and make this old one powerless, even make it disappear? And to do that, begin by using this question, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.